Good God, this parachute is a knapsack. Sorry, I've always wanted to do that. <laughs> I keep was saying something because I went blank. So like... <laughs> <laughs> it's always good to throw in a friend's line at the start of a Star Trek podcast. Ah, yes, very good. Um, so for anyone listening, we're back for um, to discuss uh, season one, episode 15, Jatrell? Jatrell. Jatrell. It also sounds like an amazing hip-hop name. I'm just going to say that. Jatrell. Yes. I mean, to- totally, Produced totally. Produced by Dark at- Child. I get it, yeah. <laughs> Dr. Trout, yeah. I'm completely at odds with the actual atmosphere of the episode, I have to say, so forgive my slightly bumptious take on it. Uh, no problem, but just I think we take one minute to offer ourselves some self-congratulation because this is the penultimate episode of season one. So we... So we've actually achieved, read what you're saying about what is highly successful or the top 1% successful podcasts or something. Yes. Ones that get past the first episode and even more so ones that make yeah. it a whole season. <laughs> so. Yeah, we're like in the top 1%. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We're the, we're the 1%. And I'd also like to point out for those of our listeners who might have been wondering, those whoop sounds were actual humans uh, making those sounds. Um, yes, we don't wanna... have a sound is that what it's called? <laughs> I mean, no one would believe it, given the quality of that whooping. But um, I wanted to ask, uh, did we have a number of people viewing this, at which stage we sort of said that I would turn up to an episode dressed as Q? And please, for heaven's sake, tell me I haven't. we haven't passed that. Well, we did make that deal, but I don't know what the number was. And I don't think it was <gasps> 100. We're now on 105 listens. No, shut the front door. <laughs> are you serious it was out no we're gonna have to go back you oh man that's amazing first of all you know i'm gonna have to have this whole episode in suspense because we'll never be able to sort of dig through you know what i'm laughingly gonna call our archive to find out if that was our number um but that that would be hysterical if we actually did, had done that oh yes i'm not re-listening i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> you can pick a new number if you want no, 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 no. I, I hold by that. I, you guys, uh, if that was the number, um, you have a Jamie turns up dressed as a Q, Judge Q, not Q, Judge Q, uh, card that uh, needs to be played at some future point to be discussed and arranged off camera. Uh, well, presumably, okay, while on. I uh, arrange my my fugue to a non-extradition treaty nation. Hang on, hang on. I, I thought that, I mean, I don't remember how many listeners you had to get to, but I thought that you had to dress as Judge Q to the London Star Trek convention. <laughs> was, that not, was that not? <laughs> I mean, that just sounds like the sort of silly, stupid, suicidally embarrassing thing that I would definitely have signed up for. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, we're just dressing uh, up for me and Jenny. <laughs> what are you trying to say here about dressing up for you and Jenny? My goodness, Red. Um, okay, I'll have to and at some stage to a Star Trek convention. Although, could we just say comic as well? Like you get, you got, you got to get the makeup right as well. Very important. You know, he's got well, the yeah. eyeliner. He's got the lipstick. <laughs> I remember Jamie coming as David Bowie to my joint thirtieth. Oh my god. Uh, at the Vesta Rowing Club, and his makeup was amazing. So, Jamie, you sure like that was me? I, I have, I mean, yes, this is this is pretty me. par for the course with the Vesta party, but I have no recollection of that whatsoever. Uh, well, I suspect, I think I drew <laughs> it on you. 
<laughs> I think oh, I that rings a bell, actually. That, that rings sense. a bell. Okay, let's let's park that one. Um, Jatrell. Jamie, no, one we? minute summary. Ooh. Before I share some fun facts. Now, this is a deep one. It's simultaneously an exploration of Neelix's dark and troubled past, a deconstruction of my previous characterization of Neelix as a comic character in a serious series who's only there to bring relief, uh, comic relief, I should say, through his ineptitude, and a deep exploration of the themes of wartime atrocity, the culpability and responsibility of scientists for what happens with their creations and the limits thereof, and the redeeming theme of moral forgiveness and atonement. Wow, your best yet, Jamie. Very I know, well I, I really wish I'd written that down and I could write that sort of stuff as opposed to ad-libbing it, but um, there we go. You can are. always go back and listen and transcribe. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think um, I think we're all going to, when we dive in, this is a really, I think, well, for me and Jamie, I'm guessing, sorry, speaking mm. this is kind of stuff we love in Star Trek. Um, mm. but I, I was doing a, a little bit of, well, a couple of things, uh, because we're trying this more streamlined format. I was trying to get, find a good way to get, um, kind of an outline or summary of the episode. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I was complaining earlier about chat GPT, um, <laughs> because I thought, let me try Don't to use that. say the name. Sorry, carry on. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought I'd just quickly read a, a couple of things that kind of, I was like, wait, that's not quite right. So... Because it gave me this brilliant like three act structure, act one, introduction, conflict. So I was like, great, this is gonna like make our lives so much easier. Um, the episode begins with the crew of the USS Voyager encountering a massive subspace displacement wave that threatens their ship. Um, as they investigate, they encounter a wounded and dying Hyconian named Dr. Jatrell. I was like, I don't remember what? a displacement wave. <laughs> I don't remember a wounded and dying Dr. Jatrell. So I was like, wait. And so I was going to use this for a while because I was like, maybe I hadn't watched the episode yet, but I was like, that doesn't sound familiar. And I go right back to the top, which I just completely kind of skimmed over and read, Detrell is the third episode of the first season of Star Trek <laughs> And at that point, I was like, I cannot use the summary because it's definitely not the third episode and I cannot trust anything further. That's awful and they say it's really good and really exact oh well i, I mean, think it, mm, yeah i think so. it's just really good at covering its tracks and hiding its intelligence it's like it's a really boris good. johnsonian sort of skynet yes it's good at sounding good but if you know the details you'll pick up the incorrections <laughs> incorrections the inaccuracies then I, I i turned to another site for some more help and i found this interesting review site um but I, we don't have to go into that, but it's dramasreviews.com for anyone interested. But I had to laugh because I there were a couple of comments that I thought maybe Jamie had written back in 20, 2008. <laughs> if he had known about this website and had watched Voyager. In 20, uh, 2008. <laughs> in 2008. Um, Neelix is an incredibly annoying character. <laughs> what? Neelix is so annoying. Um, all these but you can't comment that about Neelix in this episode. My no, goodness. I know. Well, exactly. These people are even more idiots than I thought you were for not looking Neelix. Um, it's yes, not coming out this particular episode. My goodness. You yeah. Know, you take away the structure, you know, and the, the chaos behind the veneer of civilization of this podcast comes out. 
Well, <laughs> I just read those and I was A, surprised, but I did laugh because I thought, um, okay, you do have some compatriots, um, I guess, in your in your opinion. I mean, I no longer feel that way about Neelix having understood the trauma he lived through based on this particular episode. Yeah, so I think maybe a slight different from previous episodes, we're going to just dive into our first mm. first reactions. And um, yeah, Jenny, do you want to start us off? Well, it was quite a serious one, wasn't it? It was, um, I kind of, I got to say, I did miss, I do love all the sort of, you know, sci-fi elements to it. Um but uh, I did miss some of the comedic <laughs> elements. It was quite, it's quite heavy going, and it was, it was a prime, op, you know, opportunity for Neelix to, you know, show his his acting skills. Um, but I kind of missed like a lot of the other characters a bit as well. Like there wasn't much of Balana and sounding um, like uh, Robert Duncan McNeil there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do like Balana. Um, well, I mean, as yeah, an I mean, ensemble cast. Um, so yeah. Mm. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. It was it was sort of a bit sort of the Neelix show, <laughs> but you know that's fair. Like everyone gets their mm. turn, don't they? Um, yeah, I um, yeah. I mean, I guess it's based on sort of things that have happened in real world. You know, nuclear disasters and atomic bombs and and whatnot, and all the mm. sort of moral implications around then. So I really enjoyed like that kind of exploration mm. of you know what what is science and why and i don't know the i guess the ch- difficulties of being a scientist in that kind of field like even today like people who are working yeah. in defense and developing weapons and things um so it's, it's yeah. A, yeah, interesting philosophical exploration but i did miss the comedy no and and i'd agree with you sorry red you you go you go oh. no i just wanted to say that it's like yes i didn't write down many funny lines which is what i normally mm. spend a lot of my time doing and you reminded me when I was doing the trying to find those summaries. Um, I found the fun fact, which I forgot to share, and you've already alluded to this, is that Jatrell is actually based on Oppenheimer. So, mm. so which is I just thought I would just mention that because we just had the film Oppenheimer, which I have not seen and probably will never see because it's a film, mm. not a TV show. But um, I just thought that was interesting timing. Mm. Yeah, I didn't realize that that it was. I mean, I assumed he was based on like many things throughout history but yeah yes. that, that yeah. makes a lot of sense mm. Jane, sorry. i no no i and to, to sort of continue that theme of oppenheimerish and responsibility for destruction and actually something that i think separates star trek as a more serious explorer of not just far off galaxies but also moral themes and questions than many other sort of comparable science fiction series is for those who haven't watched this, the episode actually centers around an enormous sort of event, not dissimilar to the destruction of Alderaan in Star Wars, where an entire planet is laid waste. And rather than becoming this sort of revenge tragedy saga, which perhaps an unkind person might typify uh, Star Wars at, it actually sort of explores the themes of culpability there and also the responsibility of well, is it the responsibility of the Oppenheimer-type figure who created that weapon? Answer initially seems like a hard yes, then turns slightly to a hard no, although that character, it has to be said, actually doesn't defend their responsibility or their lack of control with what's done with their work as strongly as perhaps could be the case, perhaps as an outcome of the guilt that they feel. But it's a far more serious exploration of that than, I think, 
you typically find on a science fiction program because it's actually like saying, well, yeah, this character has destroyed effectively a planet population 300,000 or then it turns out to actually it was the thing that they designed and built, though they didn't actually necessarily have control over how it was deployed. Then it was actually this individual never wanted that to happen and is back without giving himself an ounce of slack, trying to find a way to effectively resurrect all the people who they killed. And I have been interrupted by hand in the air because I was waffling. <laughs> so let's not kill the few viewers, uh, viewers listeners well, who may have. Jenny, I think me. you'll be thrilled that I'm interrupting you because I'm basically interrupting you to agree that in the, like, I love that Star Trek basically, in, in any other kind of really formulaic kind of, um, sci-fi movie or formulaic. No, no, just the other <gasps> other series, not Star Trek. But they always center it on this, like you know, in you know, there's um, Darth Vader or there's some really evil being, you know, um, and it's like a, it's not really true to life, is it? I mean, there's rarely like one evil, um, you know, completely inhuman uh, thing that the heroes have to fight against and kill. Like the the reality is that you know a lot of evil that happens in the real world is a result of all these like complicated interactions, and the people behind them aren't necessarily all pure evil. Um, so it was kind of like interesting to explore, like Jatrell would have been um, the, the anti-hero in, in a more sort of formulaic, um, you know, program, I think. But, you know, you're looking, you can, some of his arguments, like they do make sense in, in a weird way, you know, his passion for science and how important he feels it is scientific endeavor and sharing knowledge with the rest of the world. Um, you know, so I, I just enjoyed that. It felt a bit more like of an adult sort of um, exploration of these terrible things that happen rather than just let's blame this one awful human, awful, I was going to say human being, but it's not human being. <laughs> yes, Jamie. A question to pose as to folk who both work in different areas of STEM uh, and were educated in different areas of STEM relevant subjects, as opposed to me, who was, you know, very much an arts student. How do you feel about, Jatrell's morality agnostic view that regardless of how his piece of technology or work is developed, he has a duty to research and continue the science of it, regardless of potential impact of said research. Where do you stand on that? Jenny, go ahead. I was hoping you'd go first, Red. Well, I mean, I've never done research any way near that. Um, I mean, I did biochemistry, but then I went into sports science. So um, I, I can understand his, like, the thing I guess that I related to a bit was wanting to do something for the sake of figuring out how to do it. Um, I can imagine that. But I, my, me, myself, I, can, I cannot tolerate... Um, I'm not really drawn to jobs or whatever that have high risk for other people if I get it wrong. So there is that. Uh, that's just my personal, you know, I can only share my personal. But he actually got it right, not wrong. That's the no, thing. No, he got it right. But for me, that would be way too much responsibility to take on my own mm. shoulders, just for me personally. Mm. I think it's, um, yeah, the, I do. Because, yeah, you, I agree in, to some extent with his um, sort of philosophy of, of um, scientific endeavor. But... I, I mean, in this case, I think, well, from what I understand, he was working on something that he knew would be used as a weapon 
Um, and I think that is not something that I personally could, <laughs> could um, work in in that field. But the thing is, there are a lot of examples where, um, you know, scientists have been working in, in fields that then that technology was taken and used it as a weapon, but they would not necessarily have known that that's what it was for. Um, possibly even the reverse. I mean, technology from weapons research that filters into consumer tech mm. or products and things oh, like it's, that. It's, mm. it's a known fact that uh, after many wars, especially, for instance, the First World War and the Second World War, medical science took leaps and bounds forwards because of the new treatment methods, the new ways of treating all of the other mm. horsemen of the apocalypse that ride along in war's horrific wake. Um there's also I, even I sort of I, I sort of sorry go for it well and I was just gonna add that even in healthcare like you can be working on something that we might be thinking will help cure people and help treat people but even that can be taken and used in biological warfare yeah I mean, and also just go, I mean it's very interesting to hear what you guys are saying about other I mean other sci-fi shows or movies or films well actually i'm not that familiar i mean i'm really only just watched star trek that's my exposure to sci-fi uh but maybe that's why i like it because i don't there's whole like Mm. these revenge schemes or just trying to get back at someone for something i just doesn't interest me at all like the more Mm. there's um, a maturity to the character's actions as opposed to simple revenge it's always actually about some sort of societal unit being moved and progressed away or out of a situation and folk actually act in quite a mature and professional manner. It's interesting though, because oddly the the first sort of sci-fi parallel that I was reminded of wasn't something involving the destruction of a planet. It was actually um, one of Terry Pratchett's very last novels and novels covering one of the darkest of subjects and uh, an atrocity and a genocide. the book called Snuff, effectively about um, when Sam Veems goes uh, away on a holiday to a place where actually goblins have been brutalised and uh, enslaved and slain en masse, and dealing with that sort of history. And I think there was a very, very sort of... Uh, Terry Pratchett, of all folk, for all he was a comedic writer, also one who made incredibly serious points about things through comedy, and there was a parallel in terms of the seriousness with which they, throughout this episode, both treated the subject. So, I mean, obviously for individuals who haven't watched uh, this episode, it centres around the plight of Neelix when confronted with a doctor who designed a weapon which destroyed his world, but has come claiming he's there to save Neelix's life because Neelix possibly contracted something in that particular incident when he went back as a rescuer. Um, And then their path afterwards as they attempt to go back to the place of that atrocity and um, effectively the Doctor's occluded motives uh, and their morality or otherwise. Um, But yeah. Summary, why did you put that in the one minute summary? (laughs) Oh, because I I wanted to give full vent to my pretensions in the uh, one minute summary. Um, So, this is the Star Trek podcast. So, we will continue in the. um, uh, But um, I'm sure people who know Terry Pratchett, I love Terry Pratchett. That sounds like something I should read. But yes, sometimes easier to interpret things through like a film or lens that's completely unrelated to your own experience. And then you can see it Mm. much more clearer than Mm. um, if you're personally involved. 
Mm. Uh, so should we, are there any final thoughts before we kind of just jump into a closer look at the episode? I would like to voice a thought that actually start to see Kez become a bit more of a pivotal character in this one. And yeah. the, the fact how strengthening sort of her affection for Neelix is to him and how much he gets from how often she reframes him in some of those moments where, you know, he's feeling that self-contempt about, was I actually conscientiously objecting or was I just running because I was a coward? And how she reframes his actions to him when he's suffering moments of uncertainty and going back to sort of Star Trek nerd hat on. um, I I really like uh, how she starts to show a new and different sort of strength. Uh, I agree. I think, um, not to give too much away, but that's a foreshadowing to my star player. Uh, but should we dive? I think we'll cover that in a bit more detail. Um, so I discovered a new word when I was researching this episode, which is teaser, which I think is the section before the intro. So um, if we're ready to dive in, uh, we can just go through the teaser and the kind of five main acts just drawing out our key, uh, the key scenes. Because I think there are a couple of very strong scenes that I'm mm. anticipating we'll want to discuss in a bit more detail. Um, so in the teaser, we have Neelix and Tuvok playing pool and Shay Sandrine, I'm sorry, please excuse my pronunciation. And Neelix learns about the safety shot, which is a bit of, I guess, some foreshadowing. Um, do you want to tell us what the uh, safety shot is? Jamie, because your hand is No, shot. I, I want to ask, was Shea Sandrine is that French cyber brothel that one yes. of them sort of dreamt <laughs> up that Captain Jamie gave lice? So it was a French cyber brothel, okay. Um, yeah. How do we feel about the fact that uh, Voyager has a brothel in its cyber well, deck? Well, did you guys notice before, I can't remember this is the first time this guy's appeared in the brothel, but the guy, one of the holographic characters, the guy with the like, jazz hat, um, I think he's like Mr. Heckles and Friends. Yes, he is. Okay, sorry, I'm repeating myself. No, no, but I, well done for recognizing him because I mean, you know, maybe I'm losing my mind, but yes, I think I remember that was like a fun fact, perhaps from the first time we saw him. Um, but yes, I, I forget every time I see him, and then I have to like be reminded <laughs> or Google it. Um, so I don't know if we want to discuss the safety shot in more detail, but basically uh, Neelix is kind of about to lose to Tuvok, so he just sends his ball somewhere where Tuvok can't reach. Tuvok's like, ah, if I just do this X, Y, Z, I'm sure I can make the shot. And then he like sinks his ball straight into the pocket. <laughs> which was yeah. It is not the display of athletic coordination you expect from a Vulcan. No, I was surprised, but I thought it funny. Uh, and then uh, Neelix is summoned to the bridge because there's someone approaching, a shuttle approaching, who wants to speak to mm. him. Um, and Neelix reports the bridge. And quite a, I didn't notice his outfit in the cyber brothel, but I think he is wearing quite a jazzy outfit as he. No one notices an outfit in a cyber brothel, Red. No one does. Um, he joins and we... he walks onto the bridge. Are we are we still going sort of from the tre- teaser, by the way, or are you no, now sort of out um, Oh, cool. Let's go. Uh, and so we have this moment where he, I guess, recognizes the shuttle, it's Hyconian, and he shares some history with the, the crew on the bridge. Do you want to mm. cover that, Jamie? Um, well, he he effectively shares the fact that his world was conquered by the Harkonians, um, and without giving too much else away, looks quite disturbed. Um 
a situation which is only enhanced when effectively the officer in command of the Harkonian vessel asks for Neelix and describes himself as I am Dratral. Yes. At which stage Neelix rushes out extremely, extremely upset and nearly in tears. Yes, and that is the end of the teaser. And so to keep up the pace, we're going to move straight on into the actual... <laughs> Sorry, again. Um, we have yes, live humans doing those sound effects. He's very upset. And the next... So in Act 1, it starts with Neelix kind of sharing more information with Janeway, I think, in his quarters. But he is emotional. I mean, I don't know who wants to say it, but he... That line, like, he's a mass murderer. I think that's it's how a, the scene it's starts. It's a good, strong entrance line to this as a sort of piece of context for why he might be upset. Yeah, and he shares more with Janeway about, like, exactly, I guess, Dr. Dutrell's role in the murder of all his, his well, in the destruction of his home acts. Yeah. Yeah. So we find out that, that at this point, I think we're just finding out that Neelix sees him as the, uh, so he's like the famous scientist who came up with this Metreon cascade, which is basically the human equivalent of like the atomic bomb or yeah. nuclear device. And um, he was the scientist behind it. And then that was used on the moon Rhinax, um, part of the Talaxian, uh, I guess, territory, um, which is where Neelix's whole family lived. Um, and he lost his whole family due to this weapon that this yeah. scientist he's now meeting face to face actually created. So, mm. understandably distressing, I guess. Very. And the, I think the only thing to add there is that he kind of reveals that he, the only reason he survived is because he was on Talax, Talaxia? Talaxia. <laughs> yeah, training so. with the Talaxian Defense Forces. Yeah, and they were mm. preparing for like an invasion that they were anticipating, but then Talaxia <laughs> surrendered after this um, mass. Weapon of mass yeah. destruction, I guess. May I, may I name the weapon? Yes. I, I thought I the just metrionic did. cascade. That's what Jenny said. Just <laughs> a shop, Jamie. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I mean, it sounds, you know, possibly Melodic. like something rather beautiful. <laughs> it sounds yeah. like a, a beautiful uh, golden waterfall or something. And in yeah. fact, um, two, two, other, two other things that should be uh, mentioned is one uh neelix's tidbit of information that this place had a population of three hundred thousand, but two that it was also an absolute paradise uh initially with a very temperate climate so jamie is that essential because yes is that essential because we try to go much quicker <laughs> i think it adds emotional well, I, I scratched that for my 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 notes um and the next scene we see jatrell's just beamed aboard and he's very excited about transporter technology maybe too excited but um and he's speaking to Janeway and a uh, Tuvok and Janeway is speaking on Neelix's behalf because he refuses to meet with Jatrell and Jatrell's just like I need him to undergo a medical examination because I think he might have this deadly disease metremia which I think he may have contacted while he was on a rescue mission on Rhinox um mm. and you know since that rescue they have discovered incidences of these rescuers developing this disease um and well we, i didn't make take many notes about the science but basically your cells undergo fission and disintegrate so it mm. sounds serious i guess it's like the equivalent of radiation poisoning for, yes you know if, yeah if you go back to where there's been a bomb go off um but he, he kind of does seem sincere i did write down one line that he said like each talaxian i scan or screen brings me one step closer to a cure so he's really trying to enlist janeway's help to convince Neelix to undergo this medical examination um 
Uh, next week we're in the mess hall and Neelix is preparing dinner and talking with the kids. And this is, I think, a sweet scene. Um, we find out Neelix never really shared about his war experience with, with kids. Um, and just that, you know, he wasn't comfortable sharing something with her that, well, she wasn't there to see herself. And maybe this is a one experience that can't be shared, which, you know, mm. for them seems pretty unusual because they seem like very close and open and all that. Mm. Yeah, he says, it re- I find one of his line, there's a line he uses there, which I just find really interesting. I'm not really sure why. I, I just, it was something along the lines of, um, I, uh, I can't share what I felt with someone who did he wasn't there experiencing it hmm. um and i don't know why it just stuck with me that line i guess i imagine that's how a lot of people who are who go through some kind of trauma hmm. must feel about it you know like they can't talk about it they, they can only hmm. really feel comfortable with someone else who experienced the same hmm. thing with them um yeah. i don't know it has just has sort of very much terms of ptsd <laughs> yeah i guess in a way having to explain it is kind of traumatizing you know, and you know that that person will never really quite be able to understand. Mm. So it's like, well, it's just easier not to say anything. It, it positions Neelix in a place of uh, great emotional vulnerability, given what we found out in the previous scene when the doctor, uh, Jatrell, spoke to the captain on Neelix's behalf and revealed the fact he worried that uh, Neelix might very well have a disease from that place. Um, in the scene that we're talking about in the kitchen. The skipper shares that news and uh, Neelix responds with the immortal line, he's touched by the doctor's concern, uh, but he would rather be immersed in a pit of trilinean eels, which one imagines isn't similar to one of those sort of things you put your feet in to get them uh, exfoliated, (laughs) uh, than be touched by the doctor. Uh, The skipper her redoubtable self uh, deals with this by saying she won't in any way force Neelix to do anything he doesn't want to, but eventually sort of morally forces him to go and get the doctor to look at him for his own peace of mind. Well, yes, I think, um, I think Kez is really, really logical here because um, just again, some more foreshadowing, but he's mm. like, what is the point of me being screened or scanned because it's, you know, fatal. So if I have it, mm. it's not going to make a difference. And she's like, but, and she's a big fan of the Doctor, let's not forget. Mm. So she's like, but we have like the best Doctor the entire planetary universe mm. on board. So, you know, he could probably do something. So he kind of can't really argue against that. And But he kind of agrees to at least hear Jatrell out. Mm. I'm not sure. Um, and I, he, the scene is quite funny because Janeway and um, Kez are pressing in on him. And he's like mm. outflanked and outnumbered. Kind of, he kind of relinquishes mm. or surrenders to their kind of convincing mm. uh yes jamie point of order is the doctor the best doctor in the galaxy in Would one mind, dr yes. julian bashir want to argue that particular point dr julian bashir i'm sorry rags nowhere near i got red to crack i finally got red to crack i threw something provocative in and she went for it no regrets <laughs> sorry so let's, let's crack on before he's we... too busy chasing tail <laughs> I, I, I put Beverly Crusher above Julian Bashir. Oh, yes, I love. Let's just Crusher. focus on what does that phrase you just used, "chasing <laughs> tail," mean? <laughs> I'm not going to explain it if you don't understand. Um, I'm an innocent. So yes, uh, um, sorry, Neelix has been pressed into at least hearing the Doctor out, which I think takes us into one of the first kind of major scenes between uh, Neelix and Jatrell. So it's in in the briefing room. 
just mm. with Janeway. And Charles starts kind of talking about isotopes, and I don't know what he needs to do. I kind of didn't pick up this, but um, Neelix is already this? yeah on the kind of attack. Like, why are you doing this? He's very suspicious. Um, you know, is this all just uh, out so of because scientific? Because you're curious, or because yeah. you feel guilty? Well, take us away, Jamie, because I think you you'll be able to. No, 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 no. I, I I'm just the comic relief to your sort of serious drive on this one. Um, but but you're right. It it turns into a very very sort of jacuzzi scene in in which Jatrell tries to fend off Neelix's. Uh, would we call it nuclear grade? And I appreciate the fallacy of doing this uh, on a show covering the issues that this one did. Nuclear grade passive aggression, or um, would we describe yes, it as something else? Passive right? aggressive. <laughs> into he, aggressive. Uh, yeah, into aggressive aggressive. He asks the doctor, "Do you sleep at night?" And he goes, "I slept every bit as well last night as I have every night for the last fifteen years." unspoken subtext to that since the Metreon cascade destroyed a place known as Rhinax. Exactly. So it's like, does he sleep well or does he sleep badly? Um, Mm. I think it's at this point where he's kind of just his defense to Trell's defense is that while he simply developed it, it was the government and the military that, you know, decided to use it. Mm. Um, And we kind of also learned that he didn't anticipate the radiation poisoning. Um, He says Mm. that's unfortunate and unfortunate was an unfortunate choice of words, I think. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, From Ebook's uh, perspective. But, I, I th- mm. yeah. Uh, I think that may have been what triggered uh, Neelix's declaration that he'd rather die than ease Jutrell's conscience, which is uh, foreshadowing with an added extra dash of irony, I feel. Yeah, um, yes. Exactly that line. I, sorry, this is more just again, more like a common blame chat GPT, but I copied and pasted the line from like, you know, quotes from the episode from mm. like this website. And even that was wrong. So they had it written down as, I would rather die than help you with your experiments. And then I was watching, I was like, that's not right. So that's not <laughs> nearly as good. Yeah. So many errors on the internet, guys. Just watch us. Okay. <laughs> um, yes. uh, and he's like, find yourself another laboratory rodent. I think mm. um but eventually jatrell is persuaded in classic neelix fashion i think because vice versa no sorry yeah neelix is persuaded uh because um he can help others i think mm. um by undergoing yeah. the scan generally gives him a compelling moral equation of is it more important to punish him than help others at which stage we find out that neelix really is a was was that Jatrell's mm, line? I think that was Jatrell, yeah. That that must have really stung, as I thought that was the line that sort of uh, moved Neelix, ultimately. It was. It was, I think. Ooh, chills. <laughs> um, so, yeah, he undergoes the scan um, while making digs at Jatrell, because he can't help himself. <laughs> I don't know if we wanted to talk about that, but... I think there was a funny, there was a little comic relief because at the end of telling a story about how he set a trap, caught the animal, mm. then felt sorry for the animal, then, you know, let it go, whatever. And Jatrell's like, are you finished? And Enix is like, for now. <laughs> <laughs> so it was um, a little... I love that. Yeah. Um, so moving into act two, uh, we have this kind of, again, another touching scene with Kez and Neelix. And um, we learn a bit more about I guess, um, you know, 
Felix is trying to protect her from his feelings or, or and reality, the fact that he might die. And she's like, I don't want to be protected. I want to face this with you. And then uh, we kind of reminded about the fact that she only lives for like nine years because now mm. Felix is actually relieved that he'll die before. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not that it's funny, but it's just like, I kind of, you know, it's a reminder of the kind of relationship and the dynamics and constraints there. Um, don't know if you have anything to add. Um, no. And so um, the next thing, we're in the ready room and Jatrell arrives to talk to Janeway and he proposes, here's some techno babble, using the transporter to retrieve a sample from the Metreon cloud surrounding Rhinox to potentially develop antibodies mm -hmm. for Metremia. Um, mm -hmm. Basically, Janeway agrees to this rather big detour, I think, because when she says, she issues the command to Chakotay, he's like, that's a significant mm -hmm. detour, Captain. But there's some suspicion on Janeway's part, isn't there? Because initially, when Jatrell... Yes, I think I skipped over that, but to keep things uh, short. <laughs> oh, but I think that's important to inject the fact that they're not just taking Jatrell at face value. Um, oh, no, what happens? Maybe I'm thinking of something else. Um, sorry, 30 oh. seconds. Oh, whose dog is that? Jenny, do you have a dog? No, but the neighbours do. <laughs> Ah. He's very, very friendly though. So the barking is is quickly turns to you know like um, happy wagging tail. Uh, cute. When you go and see him, <laughs> he's also got three legs. Oh, bless him. Yeah. Um, is Jamie coming back? <laughs> <laughs> uh, where yes. were we? <laughs> I sorry. Uh, a really I was trying to speed us along, really... and Jamie was taking us back to some detail. So you're gonna to have to speak to your husband, Jamie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Control Although, your husband, woman. Sorry. It's quite Go. tricky because then I'm thinking, oh, and then there was this bit, and then I think, oh, but was that? Am I going forward too far, or am I going back now? <laughs> Look, I'm disappointed you, boy, you ladies haven't wrapped this episode up in the time I was out dealing with the three-legged Labrador who just <laughs> well, came Well, maybe, maybe going forwards, I mean, I don't know if you want to do this, but I can always send the synopsis and you can add your notes to the, you know, add, flesh out the detail to the section where it's relevant and you know when to say it. Hmm. Um, but, yeah. Interesting. Maybe we should ask our viewers for thoughts as well. Get, get interactive with them for the first time. I mean, if they have any opinions they want to share, then <laughs> Natalie at superstreak.co UK. Rian from Weybridge, likewise. <laughs> <laughs> mine is an actual real email address, so go for it. Uh, Jamie, oh, what are you saying about mine? mine? Mine's real. You know, Wayne maybe you in my head. <laughs> Rian. Rian. Um, anyway, should we, should we crack on? I, I heard that someone was keen to keep this brief because, you know, brevity is the soul of wit. Yeah, I want to see if we can get this done under 45 minutes. No, I'm kidding. That's yeah, we can do it. Go, 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 but Jetrol kind of so they come up with this plan. Jetrol leaves the briefing room, but he stumbles, hinting at his you know some future events. And Janeway kind of makes a little some light humor here, going, "All that sparring with Mister Neelix does take its toll." So I thought that was a nice line. And we um, all agree with it. Yes, Jamie definitely. So we're back in sick bay where Neelix is getting another scan because he's agreed to his regular scans to help with treatment if they're able to develop it. Um, and. Also in the scene, Jetrel observes the doctor kind of deactivate himself, which is important later on. But I think, again, this is another key scene between these two actors, these two characters, because it starts off with Neelix pushing Jetrel on the fact that he, you know, why a civilian target? Why not a military target or a demonstration on an uninhabited planet? That's what Neelix would have done. Um, 
I'm waiting for you guys to jump in. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he doesn't really have a satisfactory answer to that, does he? Because, you know, I have some nonsense answer about wanting to, you know, make an impact. And, you know, the, the mm. military strategists didn't feel that a military target would have a big enough, um, I don't know. Well, can I just ask a really random question? When, when I can't imagine when something like uh, the atomic bomb was used that the scientist was asked for where do you think we should deploy this weapon of war? It would have been a decision taken by a general, surely. And I, yeah, I sort of feel that's... like that that's what happens in this instance, but he doesn't really hide behind that as much as he could have, in my view. Well, I think, yeah, I think there's some naivety on the part of Neelix character which is that like the scientist could have done something to change the mm. outcome which i think is naive on his part personally i mean maybe i'm wrong but it's like doesn't sound like neelix because you developed it doesn't mean you have a say in how it's deployed but he's like saying because you were this brilliant scientist they would have listened to you i guess and mm. uh charles like well if it hadn't been me it would have been someone else and he was like mm. it was inevitable which does tie into a philosophy i have which really irritates people <laughs> Mm-hmm. on this podcast like if something happened it must have been inevitable because uh if it wasn't inevitable it w- wouldn't have happened <laughs> yeah there's uh, there's a That's lot a weird of, one there's a lot of faulty assumptions in it must there, have been but... inevitable i mean what is the faulty assumption if it happens it must have been inevitable I mean, the, <laughs> you you get into then from that point onwards literally every single thing since the Big Bang was was inevitable, uh, and and it's not a dissimilar argument to that which is used uh, effectively by Chris, uh, some wings of evangelical Christianity about predestination, um, but it also removes absolutely the spectre slash illusion of free choice, which is why I tend to reject it. Although some in some philosophical creeds the illusion of choice is the same thing well um, i just think logically you can't defeat this theory because if it happened oh it oh i i will find you stuff that <laughs> absolutely tears the the underlying assumptions legs out of this one but uh, uh good luck with that. but you would find that to be inevitable <laughs> wouldn't you yes exactly. i'm not saying it's predestined i'm just saying it's what's the inevit- difference inevi- between inevitability and well i've never stopped to consider that i just like to throw this theory out there to annoy my friends and it always works <laughs> i am annoyed i knew i knew someone would be um but back to the the scene um, I think Neelix brings up the matter of consequences and then Chitral, like shares that there were some consequences for him because his wife rejected him and took his three kids away and kind of looked at him like a monster, I guess. Could we just clarify, he... not rejected, but left? Rejected sounds like, um, I don't know, it sounds like... Rejected different. and left with the three kids. Okay. Okay. Well, maybe that's not the right word, but that's how I interpret it. Um... Neelix is obviously like, this is not on the same level as what I experienced. Um, and he does describe the kind of horrors of going back um, and um, trying to find survivors or help survivors. <laughs> Sorry for the listeners. Jamie just posted in the chat, my last interjection was inevitable. <laughs> yeah, you can't use this against me because I agree. <laughs> Um, you have no idea how annoying I can make this. <laughs> but anyway, I think that description of like returning and like encountering these people that have been like disfigured by the mm. 
Metrion Cascade and him being Don't initially frightened by someone and then actually it's just a young girl. It's kind of very touching and sad. Um, yeah, that's a horrible description. They said so his skin was all like ash and then he took her back mm. to a medical facility and watched her like slowly die over several weeks. Oh. Yeah, that's quite um, horrific. I, I, I feel like that's definitely... Because there's like been descriptions of people with like radiation poisoning and things, haven't there? And I feel like they probably drew heavily on that. Um, it's horrifying. Yeah, not something mm. that anyone should have to see, really. Mm. And well, not on the same level as your wife leaving you. <laughs> mm. um, so I think he says something like, those are consequences. Um, and he also kind of pushes Jetrol again, like, do you ever think your wife is right? And I think Jetrol kind of admits that, yes, there was this moment when he saw the first detonation or the most successful detonation where he realized he was a monster. Mm. But I guess it's emotional. Yeah. It's emotional in the scene. And, but he, I, I do like his line also after this one. And then he, he, he sort of makes him um, cry. And then he says, but you know, the reason I haven't tried to apologize to you is that I, can't no, how can I, can't. I ever apologize yeah. for something like that and i mean that's a good point yeah <laughs> like, just how how could you even begin to try i don't know thank you jenny because I, I completely skipped over the line i think that is the main point of the scene is that he's like he is emotional he does feel guilty but like he knows he can't even apologize for the mm-hmm. um act three starts with this creepy nightmare that um, Neelix is having, where we see Nightmare pool. Nightmare pools. Yeah, oh. Nightmare pool, Jetrel, Kez, as I put, Talaxian Gull, Palaxia, which was, I mean, as a, if I'd watched that as a kid, I would have had nightmares myself. Mm. <laughs> but I was a sensitive kid. Um, and the final scene is like Neelix yelling at someone, being like, you did this, you did this, and turning that person around, and he's kind of screaming at himself. Um, mm. And he kind of wakes up in a sweat as he's being messaged from Captain Janeway. I don't know what the type. But anything you want to say about the dream? A lot of jazz hands. A lot of jazz hands. Um, There's the lightsaber. Go on, Dave. I just like the way that something that was so familiar, the French cyber brothel Chez Sandrines, is turned into something nightmarish. Um... I love how you're calling it a cyber brothel. It's going to catch on. I mean, I've, <laughs> I've caught it already. Yeah. Um. No. 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 I. I. Um. I. I. It's clear that the underlying sort of thing there is survivors' guilt. Um. And, and yeah. self-accusation yeah. nation. Um. But yeah, mm. go for it. He's awoken by the captain saying that they're approaching Rhinax and onward to conclusion. Yeah, very. Uh, feel free to take it away if you want. Um, Good heavens, no. <laughs> well, do we? Are we? Have we? Are we at the point where basically Neelix, or have Nearly. we gone past this point? Okay, Nearly. where he confesses Nearly. stuff. Nearly. <laughs> Go on then. Yeah. Uh, so Voyager is approaching Rhinax. He goes onto the bridge, looking, I think, a lot less dapper than he did in that opening teaser. You know, he looks a bit mm. worse for wear. Um, and they're approaching Rhinax, and it's, I mean. Yeah, it's like uh, the remains of a destroyed homeworld. So instead of, I guess, looking like a temperate, maybe it's supposed to look like an earth, a lush earth. It's just this gray, cloudy kind of, well, not cloudy, just, oh, sorry. <laughs> work reminder. 
Um, and he actually finds it too distressing um, to be there. And he it's bringing back too many memories, so he leaves. Um, and in engineering, Jatrell is preparing to gather the, uh, the Matrion Cloud, Cloud sample for his research. He's pushing for a bigger container, which doesn't make a lot of sense because the isotopes are tiny. But um, Again, sus. Yes, yeah, sus. Exactly, Jamie. Exactly. But the, the transporter is successful and they have the sample on board. Um, and, oh, yes, I did want to say one thing about on that bridge, that scene where he describes, like, when Neelix is looking at the, you know, remains of this destroyed planet. Yeah, he has this kind of whole monologue, but it starts off with like, it's hard to believe that on a cloudless night, they could look up from Talaxia and see like the signs of civilization on the moon. I was like, that would be so cool if we could look at our moon. Amazing. See like little cities on the moon or another planet nearby. Well, that would be on the moon. I was a bit jealous (laughs) at the point of of this, not you know, like having that kind of scene, that scene. But but I, I think I think that was a little sort of an Easter egg sort of thrown in there though for the well if that could be imagined could we do it sort of thing that Star Trek occasionally does of positing a positive future outcome could we terraform the moon someday do you reckon terraform is, is such a cool idea I wish we could do that <laughs> when when are we gonna not that uninhabitable I mean like. I'm confused. Anyway, I'm sure someone. <laughs> Maybe our viewers can write in and tell us. I'm sure there's a million reasons, scientific oh. reasons. Maybe Elon Musk, if we could just say, forget yeah. Mars, go to the moon. Like, yeah. can you come on our podcast and explain why you're not going to I'd the moon? Love it. I'd Please, love it if we had Musk. some flat earther listeners <laughs> who just like took a completely OTT out, out there sort of curveball approach to that question. Oh, uh, I sorry, I kind of missed that. Sorry, James. <laughs> But oh, just, uh, yes, I think it would be hmm. so cool to look up into the night sky and see a planet and see other people living on the planet. Hmm. Sorry, that's all I wanted to say. But yes, J- Jenny, the next scene, um, Kez is looking for Neelix and he's hiding out in the mess hall. The lights are out and he's actually crouching behind like the counter. Um, and do you want to explain the scene? Since it's really into, yeah. yeah, so this is where we find out what the dream was all about, basically. That when these, it's not just survivor's guilt, it's like full-on guilt um, because as it turns out he's sort of been lying about the fact that he did not go back to Talaxia to help defend the planet uh, he he went back and then he desert, deserted basically um, and was sort of running away to hide because um, he was scared which is understandable and also um, he thought it was unjust the war and he yeah yeah um, but of course now he looks back and he says oh well it must have been because I was scared rather than like I'm morally objective. And I guess there's a bit of confusion there about whether I guess, I guess he doesn't even really know how much of it was fear and how much of it was morally objecting. And um, how can you know really um, what your unconscious is doing? <laughs> um, but he feels very guilty, understandably. And um, Kess uh, sort of questions him about that and um, posits that, Maybe all the anger that, he, which I find a bit weird, he says maybe all the anger that he he feels um, towards Jatrell is, um, you know, towards himself. Um, maybe he's angry at himself because he feels guilty for the what he sees as leaving his family to die, um, which is it is very valid point. But on the other hand, I mean, but you would be angry at Jatrell. Like, there's yeah. kind of, that's kind of there's some genuine anger mm-hmm. there. Yes, I agree. I think, um, yeah, as you say that, I think. 
Yeah, I agree with like, well, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I, I did like her line because when he kind of finally confesses and then she, he says, she says, I'm like, what an awful burden you've had to carry all these years. Like, uh, because a, it's this mix of genuine hatred, I guess, for this guy, which is right. Um, totally understandable. Mm-hmm. But it yeah. is mixed up with his kind of shame at what he feels as like not doing his bit to mm. save. Like maybe he would be more, he would be able to manage those feelings better if he had like felt that he'd done his best in a certain situation rather than feeling that he was mm. a coward or did his worst. And he has deep shame about his behavior there. Mm. Although now we what we sort of know a bit more about um, what tends to happen with things like survivors' guilt. Um, you've got to wonder whether he's just completely misremembering, and in fact, there was it really wasn't anything to do with fear or, or cowardice, and he he really did have a moral objection. And but now he's finding a way to blame himself because that's what survivors mm. tend yes. to do. Yeah. But she, I think, again, she brings, like, I think Kez brings some logic to the situation, like, to deal with these feelings, because she's, like, whether it was fear or misremembered or um, mm. or, or he had a moral stand, the position he took did threaten his own life, because during wartime to, like, not turn up to fight could be was punishable by death. So she's, like, okay, so, I mean, you weren't being a, comp- it's not really cowardice necessary, maybe that was true because you were still risking your own life for your beliefs. Mm. Um, but he, I think he, even when she says something to him, he, she's like, he answers like, I don't know. So I think you're right, Anyway, He's like, he is confused about members, mm. his motivation. But there is this, it is wrapped up with his feelings about Jatrell, I think. Mm. I did find that an interesting take, Kez's take on that, um, the sort of point about, you know, you were risking your life based on the actions you did took. Because, well, no, because the thing is, I was a bit like, and maybe this is, you know, uh, being a bit too hard on lyrics, but I was like, well, but he has two options and either way it's risky to his life. So (laughs) I'm like, I'm not sure I'd see the option of, um, you know, not not taking the military service as um, risking his life. It's because the outcomes, he risks his life either way. Um, anyway, must have been like a, maybe a moral I, I think, imperative to yeah. act the way he did. Yeah, and I, I also think that Kez is trying to shield him from the self belief that he chose the action he did because of cowardice, because that leaves him a path open to believe that mm. he chose something and made a moral and morally driven choice as opposed to a cowardice driven one which seems to be the one that's eating up at him. Hmm. I think either way, yeah, either way, whether he was right or not, there's actually two kind of sets of tumultuous feelings going on and they're wrapped Mm. up and he kind of needs to separate them to Mm. move on from them, I would would imagine. Um, Act four is pretty short. You'll be pleased to know. <laughs> the, um, How many acts are there? Five. Five. Uh, yes. Is that like standard for... I'm not sure, but I will soon find out. Because um, mm. that's not really a three-act structure. I think it's like the, you know, each each ad break before, not that we have the ads, uh, yeah. is the like, you know, when it like 
you know, cuts yeah, right. I, oh, but I remember the outbreak. <laughs> you remember. Fondly remember them. Um, so, yeah, so then we go back to sickbay and they're about to, like, run the some procedure or something where Jet, but suddenly Jetrell deactivates the doctor um, and sedates Neelix who kind of enters and interrupts, I think, to kind of talk to him about his feelings, but he gets kind of sedated before he can say anything. <laughs> Um, and uh, Jatrell proceeds with what I wrote down here, what appears to be a sick experiment because the isotopes, the stuff in the canister turn into this kind of vaguely organic looking tissue, but don't know what's going on at that point. And that's, Neelix also saw that and freaked out, which is when he gets sedated. Um, I thought it was pretty perceptive of Neelix to when he walked in, he just sees this weird organic mass in a jar and he immediately... Uh, sort of figures out what's going on, even though he doesn't know any of the details of the scientific details. But he's like, "You're conducting some mad experiment, yeah. and it's you know, it's it's morally questionable and um, very perceptive." Yeah, very perceptive, but based very much on the vision, the mental image he has of the do- of Doctor Jutral as well. Um, and when Janeway is not getting any reports from sickbay, they kind of investigate and they realize something's gone wrong, and um, they. Tuvok scans and picks up Jatrell on in the transporter room so that Janeway and Tuvok race there. Um, and as they enter, um, they like tell him to step aside because he's at the transporter controls. And he says stuff like, let me bring them back. And Neelix asks, like, bring who back? And Jatrell answers, the victims of Rhinox. So turns out a lot has been going on that we're not really aware of, I guess. But that takes us into Act Five, where Jatrell explains his crazy scheme, shame, not crazy, his um, well-intentioned scheme to try to bring back the survivors of the um, Metreon cascade 15 years previously or whatever it was. Does anyone want to explain some of the science? Otherwise, I have a little few notes written down. Well, yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's absolutely ludicrous, of course. But, but what, but, is, um, what is the one reason when Tuvok's like, but there's billions of things, how are you going to like make them? It's such a good point. Yeah. I mean, this is my immediate thought. Like, obviously, there's many other reasons why not. But like, you're, you're just like, yeah, there's not. So he wants to bring everyone back because he thinks that they've all been held. Uh, their bits of them, tiny microscopic bits of them have been held in some kind of suspension, suspended animation or some such. Um, and uh, if he can transport them um, using the, the genetic white, pattern of white one beam case study. Beam. Um, yep. He has the, he, no, 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 I'm talking about the, he has the medical records, right, of one case study, one person who died there and he's got their genetic structure. So he's going to use them as like a template and then he's going to transport all these um, bits of this one individual from um, from the atmosphere around Rhinox, I guess, and, and <laughs> recreate this individual, basically bring him back to life, um, which is where it gets all like very um, frankincense-y. <laughs> that was brilliant. Thank you, Jane, because I, I didn't, some of that I didn't pick up. But yes, like trying to like combine bits of them scattered in the atmosphere based on medical records and this, this template. Um, Janeway is like, well, no one thinks plan is going to work. But I think at this point, Janeway also realizes that Neelix never had um, the disease. The doctor just wanted to realize that with their transporter technology, maybe he had a chance of ex- like mm. experimenting or trying out this theory of his. Um, but he's desperate to try it because he only has a few hours to live and I guess a lot on his conscience. Neelix also wants it to work. So he's pleading with Janeway. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and oh no, Jenny can't leave us because we have another science person. <laughs> so she's checking on the chili. She'll be back. Um, but yeah, they're going to attempt the procedure, even though, I mean, no one on Voyager thinks it has a high chance of working. Anything to say about the attempted procedure, Jenny? Um, well, uh, I, I am glad that there was some, I did enjoy the whole, um, everyone that thinks there's not a chance in hell that this is going to work. Because <laughs> I feel like, oh good, there's some level of, um, some level of realism added in here. Because mm-hmm. I, I do, I know it's obviously sci-fi, um, but, uh, you know, I, I did enjoy that. Um, and, of course, it doesn't work, um, which I also enjoyed because, like, again, it's just adding a hint of realism in. Um, although you do see this really weird, um, like, possible outline of a, of a being, um, like it almost works. Um, mm. It's a laxian. Well, Percolating into existence. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I'm just... surprised they choose to... To, to do it, I, I mean, I guess they put it in Neelix's hands to make say, "I want to, I want to give it a go." But um, mm. that's an amazing decision from Janeway. Yes, I guess there was there was nothing to lose, but uh, not yeah. much to gain. <laughs> There's the moral, you know, like they're bringing someone back to life, and not only that, someone who died what 15 years ago. Oh, um, cool. It's quite a, you know, I, I feel like there's another episode way down the line where something else happens where they have the opportunity to bring someone basically back from the dead yeah. um and there's this whole like philosophical discussion around it and you know the implications could be disastrous whereas in this episode like that's all just ignored yeah. <laughs> i mean it's it a bit... time pressure jamie just to say you're a bit quiet sorry that's oh, quite sorry no 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 that's okay um, I was just going to say, am I the only one who is sort of reacting to this particular one thinking it's necromancy and no good will come of it? <laughs> Clearly only me. Right, so. excellent. <laughs> no, no, it is pretty, yeah, yeah. I, I, I found it all a bit sort of gothic horror movie, yeah. you know, like all novel, you know. Yeah. And, but again, like Red said, I guess it's time pressure. And, mm. um, and, and also, maybe, don't get me wrong with you. Yeah. Mm, sort of guilted into it by Neelix mm. <laughs> unintentionally I mean if, if I'm in Neelix and Jatrell's shoes then I 100% want this to happen like absolutely no shadow of a doubt and Red as you say there's no risk to Janeway from trying it apart from the fact it you know is unlikely to work yeah and at that point they would only retrieve one right because I kind of missed that but I think from your explanation Jane, that's so just yeah case study case study so they attempt this, it fails, and uh, a disappointment or an ill health, Jatrell collapses. <laughs> um, I shouldn't laugh. But, um, and the final scene is in sickbay, which I think, um, who wants to take us out here? Mm. Well, um, I'm not sure if there's any kind of lead up conversation, but I remember the main, <laughs> the main end of the scene, which is basically me that comes to tell him what he originally had wanted to tell him when he first... I was looking for him. Um, is that Neelix has said that he wants to say he forgives him, um, mm. and you know, with that, Jatrell looks up at him with sort of I don't know wonder and surprise and relief, Catharsis. I guess, in his eyes, and then dies. Yeah, mm. exactly. Anything to add, Jamie? No, no, no. I mean, ju- just that. The interplay at the end shows how far the relationship has come with 
uh, Jatrell being glad to see Neelix and um, yes. asks him if he consider, considers it a fitting punishment that he's dying of this Cascade-related ailment, to which Neelix responds that he's started to think of the Cascade as simply a punishment for hatred um, generally, um, leading into this moment of forgiveness. I'm not I'm not sure that Jatrell ever hated Neelix is the thing. I, I think don't think it's a mutual he's thing. To the warring planets or warring um Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. It's a pretty heavy episode. It is indeed. So I yeah, that brings us to the end, I guess. I mean there's a it's a heavy episode, a lot of themes, I'm sure. So Jenny. Do you have any lessons or themes that you you enjoy? Uh, yeah, I mean the whole like um, the nature of scientific endeavor and um, the moral you know, implications around that that whole um, theme I find really interesting, and um, you know I like that they explore that and um, and then there's a the whole like survivor's guilt, um, I guess. Um, what else? You don't have to cover them all. Just the ones. I feel like there's lo- yeah. I feel like there's loads. Jamie, <laughs> someone else go. Is Jamie you're smiling? No, I I think you've. Um, Is there I, a I lesson that you you took away that maybe or? Oh, you give you've given me such a gratuitous opportunity to say that I would never. The lesson that I learned is never to carry out a three hundred person, three hundred thousand person genocide of a planet by leaving my technology open for use by military technology. Not dissimilarly to the quandary that faces the protagonists of the Big Bang Theory with the, uh, I think, stabilization mm. gyrocopter thing that they uh, work on. Um, but no, funny. I think I was, we've already I was covered about it. That as well. We've already covered it, I think. Well, I, I had my own theme, which was, I mean, obviously, I'm surprised no one said forgiveness, but... Um, oh, of course. But... Actually, for me, I think there was the main takeaway is that there's some things that you can't come back from. If you do something so horrific or so terrible, you can't be forgiven or get forgiveness. And um, mm. to that, me, that's a bit terrifying. <laughs> not that I'm about, I'm not, you know, not on the scale of genocide, but you know, there's some things you you can do as a human that really will weigh on mm. you for the rest of your life. So it's better mm. to try, for me, avoid them. <laughs> Um, it's it's an interesting interpretation yeah he was really that to troll character is really haunted by what he did he can't get over oh, it yeah mm. yeah yeah 100 yeah, um, and his whole life is trying to make up for it to the extent that he comes up with like crazy schemes and mm. 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 now yeah, no disagreement our, no sorry on our star player Hmm. I think you guys have to go first. I need a little bit of thinking time. Okay. <laughs> oh, this this hurts me. This hurts me somewhere <laughs> I don't want to go. Me, Lex. Me, Lex. Me. <laughs> I can still pick someone else if you're in this. Um, it's inevitable. <laughs> fine, Kez. <laughs> that was inevitable as well. Yeah. Uh, Neelix. Oh, do you want to say why? No. <laughs> Are you feeling deep shame or something? Don't want to. Um, no, I mean, obviously for a man to, an individual to 
experience the things that Neelix did and then still find it within himself to channel the redemptive power of forgiveness is inspiring. Jenny? Well, as always, (laughs) I tend to do it more on the actual actor or actress. And uh, just to be different, because I know that everyone will choose Neelix, I actually might choose Jatrell. Yes. Because um, I do think he did, I don't know who the actress is, but he did a fantastic performance, um, you know, throughout, but also especially when, you know, his eyes started filling with tears and then he spoke about how he could never apologize because how could you some some things go so far beyond apologies being possible but and you know there were lots of little scenes like that which i just think he delivered really well yeah i think that is an excellent choice um james sloyan sloyan uh he is now 83 years old (gasps) and he was actually in quite a few episodes of star trek of a different series or um, over time, but yes, yeah, he's done a really good job. I agree. Um, yeah, my star player, as I foreshadowed at the beginning, was Kes, just because I thought someone would pick Neelix. Um, but yeah, I think, as you said, Jamie, right at the beginning, we see a bit more of her character um, and her. I like how she was completely unjudgmental of Neelix. You know, as he was sharing her story, she didn't jump to any conclusions, she asked these probing questions. She got to see things from a different perspective or try. She was very convincing and getting him to at least consider the screening. And like, I think um, uh, good to see her in that kind of active role. Um, Yeah. So all three different star players. Very good. (laughs) You know, I I find it hard to warm to Kez. um, And I think partly to do with the, she is later sort of replaced by a character who I absolutely adore. So I sort of feel like when I'm rewatching it, I'm like hurrying on her, oh, <laughs> her exit. Yes. I mean, I still don't really understand TV and why they couldn't have kept both of them, but I'm sure budgets or something. But I, I know what you mean. And also, um, I learned an important lesson, which is like if you loved a childhood show or whatever, never Google the actor or actress that was playing that person. Oh, uh, because their life might have gone downhill, and it's been oh, to dear. That what, oh, what yeah. happened? Oh no, no, I think we discussed it before, but so it's not not important. But so I think I did love her character, or I do like her character. Um, but I know what you mean when you're like, "What? When is that other one going to arrive?" And it's, <laughs> they they can't they're not on at the same time, really. So, um, do anyone ask? I get I get what you're saying. Oh, you know who it is, Jake. You're find out you'll remember any final final thoughts before we wrap, wrap up and um yeah anything to no, no, only that. The, um we, we one hour ten not bad not bad <laughs> do you think it's improved the streamlining or <laughs> we'll see i think you know as i think i shared with you guys on the weekend um not that we're doing this the exact mm. same way but the hosts of the office lady podcast angela and Jenna, I've forgotten their surnames, famous, mm. world-famous actors, um, they did, like, six reco- trial recordings of their podcast before, like, settling on their format. But we aren't mm. going to do that, but we can keep experimenting. <laughs> or yeah, we can no, try, this, try this a few times. But let's discuss that off-camera or offline. So thank you, everyone, if you listened to the end. Well done. And see you next time for the final episode of Season 1. Good, good. 
Ciao. Ciao. Ciao.